This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Oli Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. I'm honored to have a guest today, Stuart Cray from University of Glasgow, senior lecturer, and he's interested about sarcopenia and associated metabolic disorders. Welcome, Stuart. Thank you very much, and good to speak to you today. Yeah, it's great. So, uh, how did you become a researcher? Well, it wasn't necessarily a, a plan that I had. I, I just kind of stumbled into it almost. I, going back to school, I was always interested in sport and interested in science. And at the point uh, where I had to decide what university degree to study, one of my teachers said, oh, they've got new degrees called sports science. Why don't you study one of them? You like sport and science, I said. That sounds like a good idea. So off I went, uh, studied yeah. studied. It was called physiology and sports science at, at the time. Really enjoyed university life. The lecture side of things and the classes were okay, but in the final year when they kind of get into the project side of things where you could really take ownership of a study in the lab and you were generating new data that nobody had ever answering a question nobody had ever answered before, I found that really interesting. I found that really exciting to to kind of to, to do it kind of was a, a level up from the listening to somebody talk about something interesting this was a it was new data I had to understand it what did it all mean and I found that fascinating so after that I did work for a little bit of time in a gym and but I always kind of in the back of my head had I'd quite like to keep that research side of things going so eventually found a PhD that was open and accepted me which was a uh, was was the, was the first problem and and then just kind of kept going from there and once I started the PhD the the research bug was kind of had got me so I was kind of on that path and not likely to to move from it really hmm yeah and and now you main research interest in in sarcopenia how did you start studying that and what's the most interesting thing in sarcopenia yeah so my phd was actually not in anything to do with sarcopenia so my phd was looking at how if we changed muscle temperature how that could affect muscle performance muscle metabolism so it was very much focused on kind of young healthy people after that, I started some kind of postdoc research looking at inflammatory cytokines and their role in metabolism during exercise and starting to verge a little bit into health. I also was involved in a kind of long-term uh, intervention trial as a postdoc looking at whether walking interventions could be useful for health. So I started to verge towards health a little bit, but being honest, the uh, there was probably two main reasons why I switched more from exercise performance type research to health and one was when I started an academic position I quickly realised that to be get anywhere in a UK university you need to acquire funding and sports performance is not a big big thing on the funders agenda whereas at that time and still now 
ageing was a big thing. We're living in an ageing population uh, in the UK and in the Western world in general. There's a lot more older people, so there's a lot more ageing research. Uh, and secondly, I just I I found it fascinating that, and and probably more useful from a societal point of view that some of the knowledge that we've kind of I studied during my undergraduate that was more focused in sports performance and maybe increasing muscle mass for exercise performance and athletic performance actually a lot of these mm. a lot of these things could potentially be applied in a population like older people or people with diabetes and the benefits that they could have from these things for me far outweighed the benefits that helping some athletes to kind of improve their performance uh, would be so that, that was the kind of two reasons why I kind of started to move towards aging and the the muscle loss with aging from a sports science physiology point of view was always the uh, was a kind of semi-obvious place to to kind of to, to start really yeah I think that's quite a common pattern with researchers that you're interested about sports yeah. and then you kind of the funding and then in the end you might be actually more interested about because it makes a bigger difference yeah. in the world and also that it it is quite often a continuum from the athletes that try to gain muscle mass to actually people who try not to not to, to lose, to lose muscle it exactly mass. yeah definitely yeah and yeah. I, st I still do have interest in the sports performance side of things and I teach in the MSc here in Sport and Exercise Science and Medicine and a lot of our students are always interested in that. So I do still run projects in that side of things but probably my main interest does definitely lie in the sarcopenia metabolic health side of things. Mm. All right. So what's what's the newest thing in sarcopenia research? What's, what's, what's new things there? Oh, what's new? That's a... That's a tricky question to to answer. Uh, I'm not even sure how to start with that one. What is new? What is new is that we still don't really understand why it happens. Would be pro would probably be uh, would be the would be the main thing that yeah we've known for many years now that muscles lost during aging that we have sarcopenia, but we've got a bit of an idea about what interventions are starting to work, but we still mm. we still don't know why uh, why we lose muscle and how best to to actually stop people losing muscle and to gain it uh, in a way that people will actually do so yeah i'm not i'm not really sure i've answered the question there i've kind of skirted around it a little bit because there's probably not one new thing uh, but i'd say because it is still a, a kind of discipline that's in its infancy that there's Probably what's more interesting for me is what we don't know, and there's still a lot that we don't know, uh, and these fundamental questions remain to be answered. Mm, yeah. So, so what kind of studies you are running at the moment related? So, from a sarcopenia point of view, the, the kind of main area that I've got stuff on the go. There's, there's two main areas. One is looking at nutritional interventions in sarcopenia, mm. and so I did some previous work looking at omega-3 fatty acids, so commonly found in fish oil uh, and fatty fish. I've had an interest in that for a wee while, and that kind of stemmed from two areas. One, there's some epidemiological data from kind of early, mid-2000s that 
probably showing that of all the nutritional components that were measured in the diet, fatty fish intake was most strongly associated with grip strength. So kind of that's obviously cross-sectional data from a kind of big epidemiological study. So whether that's cause or effect, we don't know. But it indicates that maybe something in fatty fish could be useful for muscle. Then when I was in Aberdeen, I was working with some colleagues who actually worked more in animal nutrition. So yeah. they, they were looking at nutritional interventions to basically increase meat yield from animal and farming. And they'd done some early work in uh, pigs and kind of calves, uh, where if they gave people gave people if they gave the animals more omega three fatty acids in their diet, they were seeing increases in protein metabolism, increases in uh, and some increases in lean tissue. So we started uh, mm. I started a kind of animal study with them and rats. So we were looking at kind of aging rats, giving them omega three fatty acids, and we found that. There were some metabolic benefits, but also that there was a, a tendency for muscle to be preserved, so they weren't losing muscle as as much as kind of control chow-fed animals. So that, but again, that's animal stuff. That's not really where my main interest lies. Mostly, I'm interested in kind of human physiology and what happens mm. what happens in people, because we know that animal research doesn't always translate directly into into what happens in humans. So managed to get some funding after some pilot work and uh, we did some stuff in cell culture as well that supported it showing that EPA and DHA the kind of two omega-3 fatty acids in fish oil had anabolic properties in skeletal muscle cells in a petri dish we then got some funding to run a trial looking at uh, giving people fish oil older people fish oil whilst also performing resistance exercise because we know resistance exercise is the main anabolic, anabolic stimuli for uh, for older muscle. And mm. we found that in older men, the omega-3 fatty acids didn't seem to do an awful lot. Whereas in older women, we found that giving them omega-3 fatty acids during exercise training resulted in a greater improvement in muscle strength. Not muscle mass, but muscle strength. Mm. Because uh, we'd also taken some biopsies, we'd looked at muscle protein synthesis and these kind of things, and we didn't find anything different uh, in there mm. at all. So th- that was quite interesting. One that we've got a beneficial effect. Two, it wasn't through the mechanisms we thought. We thought it would be through a kind of anabolic mechanism, increasing muscle mass, that would drive the increase in strength. And we measured muscle mass by MRI, so it was kind of gold standard mm. measurements. But we found no change uh, so that was kind of indicating that possibly there's maybe a maybe it's a neuromuscular effect rather than necessarily a muscle mass effect at the same time as that there was a group in the states they did some studies in older people without exercise and interestingly they found that giving omega-3 fatty acids increased both muscle mass and muscle strength in older people not mm. exercising they didn't have the numbers to split by gender so it just was the overall population uh, of mixed men and women. So currently what we are doing is we're trying to, we're doing a study on that area and that area looking at giving omega-3 fatty acids. Instead of fish oil, we're using krill oil supplements this time because yeah. 
there's environmental reasons to uh, for using krill rather than fish oil but also you can generally because of the higher concentration of not the higher concentration because of the higher bio bioavailability of the EP and DHA in the capsule you can get more into the tissue without needing to take as much uh, so it's easier for all the people to kind of take the pills take the capsules so we're doing a what we're doing in that study is we're doing a six-month trial where we're giving mm. people the krill oil or not so it's a randomized controlled trial we're looking at muscle mass muscle strength before and after but we're also doing some we're taking some EMG measurements we're looking at we're doing some muscle stimulations as well to try and start to tease out the mechanistic side of things as well actually what what is going on that's actually driving the effects of uh, omega-3 fatty acids on muscle and the other studies I mentioned both had about 20-30 people in them they were relatively small this study we are trying to get 120 people into the study and I think so far we've managed to get about 90 into the study so we should hopefully be able to provide more information firstly actually in a bigger cohort do the omega-3 still have the effect to can we kind of try and tease out the mechanistic side of things so that's kind of one area that I'm interested in doing quite a lot of uh, research the second area is that I mentioned there that resistance exercise is the kind of main thing that people older people can do to gain mm. mu gain muscle we know it's not as effective in young people we have this kind of anabolic resistance but we know it's effective uh, so we're also trying to do some research more around okay we know it's effective but how do we get people to do it mm. and that's the that's the age-old question so yes if I get people into the lab and I or one of my team supervise them watch them do the exercise make sure they're lifting the weights everything goes well that's not you can't expect the older population to all have personal trainers through their whole life that make them do the exercise that's not going to happen so we're trying to develop some resistance exercise type exercise that people can do at home and actually mm. can we still see the same benefits of unsupervised home-based exercise that doesn't need a lot of equipment because again older people not not just older people lots of people don't like gyms the thought of mm. going and going and using the kind of resistance exercise equipment that that we might be familiar with is kind of terrifying for them what is this equipment it looks like a torture device it doesn't look like somewhere i want to go and spend half an hour uh sitting and exercising yeah. on so can we try and bypass that by getting people to do stuff in the comfort of their own home but then obviously the downside is they're not supervised. Will they go to the same intensity? Will they push themselves? Can we see the same effect? So we're at the very early mm -hmm. stages, very early stages of that, but it's definitely an area that uh, that we're hoping to pursue in more mm -hmm. depth. Uh, so it's more kind of pragmatic rather than necessarily a, a kind of physiological investigation, uh, that one. Okay, let's get back to that in a moment and hear a few words from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian, a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity and energy expenditure. Furthermore, 
Fibian has been shown to be valid categorizing physical activity into light, moderate, and vigorous intensity. In addition to scientific accuracy, Fibian provides automatically produced and easy-to-understand reports for research participants. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. Actually, in my, my PhD, we were measuring EMG from older people when they were doing like climbing stairs. Yes. And, and we actually saw that with some individuals, climbing stairs was like supramaximal yeah. activation compared to the isometric. And actually for those who, who it was really hard, they couldn't go five flights of stairs up, but they had to have a break. And it was never limited by the cardio respiratory function. Yeah. It was always limited from the neuromuscular side. Yeah. And it was quite interesting. And it seemed that for, especially for the weaker individuals, climbing stairs was, was a good strength training exercise. Yeah. And I remember seeing some people tried that they would do strength training with the ergometer that you just put the resistance yeah. as high as possible and then do a couple of revolutions so that could be what what kind of movements you have been planning for this so, i mean exercises? as you say things like stair climbing can be m more strenuous than a kind of leg press or leg extension type exercise for a lot of older mm -hmm. people and it is simple things like that we are looking at so actually even just for an older person getting it up and down from the chair with no weights, mm. just doing squats, doing 20 of them for a minute. For That, for them, is the equivalent of doing leg presses for 20 minutes. You'll still reach the same level of uh, activation of the muscle than you would during that. So we've got things like that you can do. Some are still able to do lunges. For the upper body, it's a bit more challenging, but we're not trying to reinvent the wheel, but just doing things like press-ups against the wall, moving down to on the mm. knees if they're capable, bringing in some resistance bands for certain exercises for the upper body. Uh, trying to basically keep it as simple as we can that people will be able mm. to do it. But also yeah. uh, still bearing in mind that it is important to stress the muscle enough and it's not... Because the tendency, I guess, with a lot of the resistance band stuff is people get the lightest resistance band and they do a few bicep curls and oh that's me I'm knackered and they they weren't they weren't stressing the muscle or activating yeah. it at all so it's trying to find a happy balance between I guess that's the age old problem with all exercises uh, it's finding that happy balance between uh, what people will do but making sure it's enough that they actually get the, the health benefits of that uh, yeah yeah and how how do you see for sarcopenia? Do you think it's more important to actually activate the biggest type 2B motor units? Or do you see that you should create like a metabolic cost for the muscle? That if you do, for example, you said like 20 squats, that's probably demanding for the muscle. But I don't know if you, you, you will actually recruit the biggest motor units. Yeah, so what we are doing is we're kind of... And we've done some work on this along with lots of other people uh, going down the route of when we kind of ask people to do these exercises, we ask them to do each one to the point or near to the point of failure. So kind of mm. on the premise that 
that we will then reach the activation of the larger motor units because I'm, I'm sure you're aware of the research that a lot of it's come out now showing that yeah you don't necessarily need heavy weights to fully recruit all the the kind of your larger motor units you can get the same hypertrophic response same activation if you do a lighter weight but you just end up doing more of them so that's why i'm saying about 20 repetitions it, it might be 10 for some people maybe 22 mm. we're asking people to go to adjust the exercise so it's hard enough that they kind of get to failure within a reasonable length of time which also for us makes it a lot easier to explain to the to the person mm. that actually just go to your kind of knackered is what we, we we would say to people and it doesn't yeah. it doesn't matter if it's 10 it doesn't matter if it's 15 we don't want it to be 120 because that's just not going to be feasible uh yeah but something that's achievable and simple for them to remember they don't have to worry about the guys in the gym that have got their notebooks and on bench press i do two reps yeah. at 92 kilograms i do three reps that from a general population point of view that's never going to work people are not going to remember all that i can never remember that myself going to the gym uh i don't can't expect everyone to to remember these things yeah so. yeah makes makes sense so yeah I, I was thinking just like how how is it like you could also activate maybe with the fast movements the type 2b but but then also it's for people who haven't done sports yeah. or are not used to it, it's just difficult them to activate maximally, activate muscles fast. So it's yeah. it is it is a challenge. Yeah, but it is something that so some of the because one thing before I moved into older people research, I completely underestimated the robustness of people over the age 65 at that point i was i don't know 24 25 i thought being mm. six, 65 was oh you were ancient at 65 <laughs> some of the people we get in the lab that are 65 they're not necessarily representative of the whole population some of them are very very fit people some of them are fitter than me uh, and for some of them it can be hard to to with just a normal squat without any weights for them to to actually exercise the muscle enough so people that are capable we have used things like adding in a jump to the squat and these kind of things that people that are capable of the more explosive type fast movements that you mentioned then we have brought them in uh, and then they can still get to fatigue activate all the motor units within a reasonable length of time because for some of these people that are very fit if you just mm -hmm. ask them to stand up and down they would be able to do that kind of for a very long period of time and never never, yeah. never get to the point of fatigue so where 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 it's possible and people are capable we have kind of m m added in those movements uh, that people can do yeah yeah and how how do you see like for example the masters athletes if you take somebody throwing a javelin they are in a in a really good good fitness do they actually prove that sarcopenia is more like it's not about aging but kind of time being sedentary or being not active that you just the time is is longer when you get older or do you think that they are like just more talented or or some some other difference yeah so that's a really interesting question i think i'm seeing a lot more papers on master athletes coming out and being published and 
a lot of the time people refer to them in the papers as a, a model of healthy aging and a model of being physically active through the life course. I kind of, I think we're often quite guilty as researchers of going for one or the other. Like kind of, as you said mm. there, is that, does that kind of show that that's what, if you're physically active through your lifestyle, that's what you'll look like or does it show that they're just talented people? There's a continuum, obviously, of these things. It's probably a mix of two, but I probably end up, I personally go for the latter in that if you, there's a difference between physically active, being physically active through your lifetime and being an, mm. an elite trained master athlete who are doing a lot of training. Yes, it's exceedingly impressive that these athletes can perform the way they do. Interestingly, though, you would never expect, even with the training, a, an elite master athlete to be able to run a 9.59 second 100 meters. So there's clearly a mm. there's clearly a decline even in these people that are the elite of old age. They're never going to run two hours. The sub two hour marathon's not going to be broken by a 75 year old. Uh, if it's broken by anyone, yeah. it'll, it'll not be a, a 75 year old. So there yeah. clearly there clearly is even in the most active of older people there clearly is a decline with function but what I think the, for me the biggest flaw with looking at master athletes as a model of active aging is that just from personal experience from experience of working with people during exercise doing studies in older people there's a lot of older people and younger people middle-aged people that want to be more active mm. that cannot be active for a variety of reasons and to me, the elite master athletes are, they probably have very unique genetics that allow them to keep active up to the age of mm -hmm. 75. They have managed to stay clear of serious injuries. They've managed to avoid things in their social, personal, family life that have stopped them exercising. They've managed to avoid metabolic disease. Surely some of these things might be because they've kept active, but they're they have got some inherent, whether it's fully genetic, whether it's environment as well, but there's something within there that has allowed them to stay active and be able to train up to the 75. I I know a lot of people that come into our lab that are 65, 70 that would love to be able to go and train at that level, mm -hmm. but for them it's just not physically possible. They've got rheumatoid arthritis, so that they can't do that with their joints. They've got They've had to have a hip replacement, so they're limiting that. They can still do stuff and they can still do activity, but they're never going to be competing at like these elite master athletes. So I tend to think of them as outliers rather than representative of a kind of healthy aging population. I still think it's a fascinating area of study to see actually what can these people do. But for me, the more interesting question I think with the master athletes is how can they still manage to do it? and understanding actually what is it about them that makes them able to, to keep doing these things. Uh, mm, yeah, yeah, I, I, I can see that that's interesting. And how, how is it, I think I have read sometimes that the sarcopenia affects the distal muscles more, that further it is from the, from the body, the muscle, it, it is stronger effect. Uh, have, have you seen this in your studies? To be honest, we've not really looked at it. We've tended to 
most of our studies when we've looked at muscle mass some of our studies we've done whole body MRIs and we've looked at whole body muscle mass but most of the time and as with most other studies we've focused on the quadriceps muscles for mm. the kind of usual reasons one we're taking muscle biopsies and that's one of the easiest places to take muscle biopsies two it's where everybody else studies three people study it because it's one of the main muscle groups involved in lots of functional movements getting out your chair climbing up the stairs these kind of things a lot of it relies on the quadricep muscles so we've never really looked at it uh, most of our studies have looked localized specifically to uh, to the kind of lower limb quadricep uh, quadricep muscle muscle mm. groups yeah and yeah yeah and and you said about this new study six month study you said that you will start to look look also the emg and and did you mention that you also do stimulation or some some other things yeah yeah so we're gonna we're gonna do some uh emg and we're also going to look at voluntary activation so we're doing kind of uh interpolated twitch technique uh, of yeah. quadricep muscles as well just to get a bit of an idea of is there much of a neuromuscular effect of of the cradle there's a lot more we could do in these things but we've kind of because originally when we were talking about that study we wanted to also take some muscle biopsies and to try and look at measuring kind of isolated muscle fiber contractile properties and these kind of things which I think would be interesting to do because there's there's some evidence from animal studies that giving omega-3 fatty acids it was cardiac muscle but it can increase the relative force production so the kind of mm. the the force the muscle can produce irrespective of size can can increase uh, with omega-3 fatty acids so there's some potential that it might actually be something inherent within the contractile properties of muscle that might be affected by the omega-3 fatty acids that that might well uh, might well be affected so but we should we just ended up not going down that route because firstly we really wanted to confirm are we are we seeing a real effect so we wanted to do a bigger study to actually see in the in a big population does the omega-3 fatty acids actually still have the effect we've seen them in the very controlled small studies but can we still see it in the in the bigger study so we kind of had to drop some of the more invasive technical measurements because it just yeah. it would inhibit recruitment and it makes it just too much for the uh, for the size of the study so we've kind of tried to to balance it out a little bit yeah and and just about the voluntary activation of the tweets do you plan to stimulate the nerve or we started looking at doing it by the nerve but the the student that was doing it was, was struggling to to do it and he was to be honest a lot of it was kind of the, the discomfort of getting around the femoral nerve area in an older person he was finding it and the, some of the older people were finding it a little bit uncomfortable so we've it's, it's surface uh, surface electrodes we're, we're just putting on yeah. to, to, to yeah. stimulate yeah. Uh, so it's more just that it was more a practical reason rather than a methodological reason that we, we've opted for that uh, yeah that, that that's why I actually asked because I was in one study doing the femoral nerve stimulation yeah. and for uh, when the person was relaxing the quadriceps 
the nerve was quite easy to find but then when the person is doing the maximal contraction even if you kept the electrode in the same place the shape of the leg changes yeah. and it's it's really challenging to find the nerve and basically most of the time we didn't actually hit the nerve and the results were not not yes. good so, so you, yeah. can, you can actually use the results anyway because they weren't they weren't they weren't any good yeah yeah yeah, yeah it's a challenge yeah and so so basically in your in your study with the omega-3 fatty acids with women you saw that the strength was increasing but not the muscle mass right yeah so we saw what we would say is an increase in muscle quality uh, yeah the kind of force production per unit area was improved yeah yeah because i i hadn't another episode with the with the researcher who was studying children and learning and then also fatty acids ah. and he found that even with children who don't have any deficiencies the fatty acids improved learning brain function cognition i don't yeah. remember which was the exact one i'm I'm just wondering could it be the same effect that that it it improves your brain function somehow which is then probably the activation from the motor cortex towards the muscle yeah so that's kind of partially yeah so there's quite a lot of research from a kind of brain memory learning point of view that we know that dha one of the fatty acids incorporates into the uh, into the nerve membrane and can improve conduction velocity along the nerve so that does there's some evidence in older people but also in athletic populations that high DHA supplements can improve neural function uh, through that mechanism. So that's kind of partially our thinking that actually it could well be, it could be more of a neural thing that, yeah, the DHA is incorporated, more DHA is being in the kind of nerve, improving the conduction velocity, signals getting to the muscle quicker, stronger, resulting mm -hmm. in a big, resulting in a bigger contraction but the muscles not got any bigger uh, so that's kind of one of the the ways we are thinking because our very original hypothesis was that there's a lot of research from the kind of immunology world that the omega-3 fatty acids are so-called anti-inflammatory and they reduce inflammation and we know in older people older people tend to have this chronic low-grade inflammation that is thought mm -hmm. to it's thought to possibly inhibit the kind of protein metabolism so the muscle protein synthesis and and block that and that was kind of originally what we thought we thought we'll give some people some fish oil we'll dampen their inflammation we'll increase protein synthesis and muscle will get bigger and they'll get stronger but we found we measured some inflammatory markers as well and quite a few of our studies in our animal study in our human studies and we've never seen any effect on the inflammatory markers mm. uh, and we'd, our studies haven't seen any effect in the protein synthesis although others have found effects in protein synthesis uh, but even in the ones that have found effects in protein synthesis there's been no anti-inflammatory effect of these omega-3 fatty acids in the older people so mechanistically it's, it is, it's, it's quite challenging to understand what what's going on mm. really uh, to be honest yeah and i i'm thinking that if i if i've read that with older women uh have eating more non-saturated 
fats or the relations between non-saturated fats and saturated fats improved their had like positive hormonal effects which affected their uh, strength gains in uh, strength training intervention do you think this could be uh, have you read anything I've, i don't know that, that study uh, study you're referring to no no i'm afraid All right. not yeah and uh, ha have you looked at the the relation between non-saturated and saturated fat in your studies or we've not from a because if you're looking at saturated unsaturated fats because in our intervention all we've done is change the kind of omega-3 fatty acid intake we've not really made any substantial change to saturated unsaturated uh, often people would look at the omega-3 omega-6 mm. ratio uh, and fat and obviously we've changed that but in our studies not i would imagine to really look at that out with that it would probably be some of the epidemiological data but i don't remember seeing any epidemiological data that shows that the kind of ratio of saturated or unsaturated really has any massive association with with muscle but then you've obviously seen this intervention study so I, i'll need to look it up and see let's hear a few words from our sponsors and get back to that right after this podcast is sponsored by fibian a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting standing physical activity and energy expenditure Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. And how, how do you see, like, now you have the difference between men and women, but it seems that it was it was more about about muscle, not, not through the hormone. Do you think that the hormonal system differences make a difference in the older adults, or how, how, how does it go? So in, in our study... The, the kind of sex difference that we saw first I'd quite like to confirm that in a bigger study again but assuming it is true uh, to be honest I don't really know why it happened but our main thought is that when we looked at the just the responses to exercise say in the control group what we found was that the women in general responded less well than the men so say I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head but on average, say the, the women increased their muscle strength by 15-20% with mm. 18 weeks of resistance training, whereas the guys increased theirs by 25-30%. So we're thinking that it might just simply be that the men were closer to kind of maximizing the potential gains that they could actually see, whereas the women had more of a kind of attenuation in their in their response to exercise so there was more room for improvement basically so by giving the omega 3s to both of them there wasn't really much that could be improved in the men but in the mm. women there, there was more room for improvement so that's why we saw the improvement there and it, we thought, thought it might it might be a bit of a generational thing as well and that the older in our study anyway the older guys we had in our study they they weren't exercising a lot at the time but throughout their life they in general had been quite fit people. They'd done a lot of exercise mm. training, played a bit of sport, ran some 10Ks quite regularly. Yeah. Whereas a lot of the women were had never done really any exercise at all. They were from more of a generation where they were maybe look at home looking after the kids 
cooking the dinner type thing, which uh, mm. obviously has changed now, but but back then that was kind of more commonplace. So the men, we think, maybe just more of a kind of if you, if you believe the data holds true, a muscle memory type response. They were used to the training, so they they uh, they kind of got a more maximal response to training. Whereas in the the women, it was all quite new to them, and they didn't didn't get as much of a response to the omega threes could could improve in, in them. That's an hypothesis. To be honest, out mm. with out with it kind of sounds sensible. We don't have a lot of we don't have any data to actually support that. So it's it's kind of something that we need to try and look yeah. in, look into yeah. a little bit more. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So one thing could be that if the men have used to do sports more, they can actually activate better and the training would be more effective. Yeah. But also in the same vein, it would be that actually then if women haven't trained as much, they could have a bigger window of improvement. Yeah, because yeah, we're starting from a lower baseline, you could, yeah. Yeah, you could see much more. Usually with strength training, you see a big, big yeah, effect, yeah. even in a one one training session. So it's it's quite, but quite interesting. I, I, I were, our thinking was that although they, they were active in kind of their midlife, in the last 10 years or so when we had them in the lab they hadn't been active so they'd all kind of gone back down to the kind of baseline mm. low level but once they started training the kind of muscle memory activation in the men kicked in from midlife but as I said it's very hypothetical uh, so it could well be completely wrong yeah, <laughs> I'll put my hands up and say that here that it could well be wrong, definitely. Yeah, but that's that's the point of research. We don't know exactly. what will be the thing because it's if always you, retros- it would be boring, wouldn't it? Yeah, and always retrospectively, people are like, "Why do we need to study that? It's yeah. clear." Like, yeah, exactly. You go to the gym and or the if, muscle or, mass increases. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you do find something different from not what you expected, like oh, you go, oh, well, actually that was obvious. We shouldn't have thought we were going to see that. Yes, it's obvious now, but at the time we made that hypothesis on the basis of the available evidence. So, yeah, it makes it interesting, doesn't it? Yeah, that's that's fully true. Yeah, it's been it's been very interesting things. I think I don't have any anything to ask anymore about sarcopenia is there something yeah. something on your mind that you would like to discuss uh, i could tell you a bit about the kind of other area that we work on that's probably not on my online profile and we've not really published much of it yet is again it's kind of related to sarcopenia and the loss of muscle but it's uh, it's research looking in south asian people and yeah we we look in South Asian people because they're around about four times more likely to get diabetes than a kind of white European counterpart. Mm. They're more likely to get diabetes at a lower BMI. Uh, so a BMI of 23 is roughly equivalent to a BMI of 29.30 in a white European. They progress more quickly through diabetes and have often got higher complications as well. There's lots of potential reasons for this. Uh, which I'll not go into in, in any great detail. But one of the things we think may contribute is that people from South Asia, so we're talking India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, these kind of Sri Lanka, these kind of places, is that they, they also have lower muscle mass as well. 
so we know muscle mass is important for metabolic health we know that it's the biggest site for glucose disposal if you kind of take on carbohydrates 80% of it will go to go into muscle so if you've got a bigger muscle more of it will get taken out you'll kind of maintain glucose control better so we've kind of just started some studies trying to actually understand why do South Asians have lower muscle mass than white European people uh, so we've kind of just done a study which we're kind of writing up just now looking at the first thing we looked at again was we used the uh, deuterium oxide traces we measured free living, free living muscle protein synthesis in mm. South Asians and white Europeans thinking we would see a difference we didn't see a difference that yeah. was it so that was interesting next because our, our kind of thinking was that what drives muscle size activity is one of the main drivers so we obviously can't look at lifelong activity in muscle and population that's not feasible so what we did was we then stimulated muscle through resistance exercise training in South mm. Asians and white Europeans thinking that we might see a reduced response in the South Asians kind of indicating similar to older people possibly an anabolic resistance to to the kind of exercise training that they were doing but interestingly looking at the results early uh, kind of just preliminary they've just kind of got in the last few months uh, it's not what we see at all so not only is protein synthesis similar between South Asians white Europeans but also we see hypertrophy responses similar to white Europeans so we see robust gains in muscle mass gains in muscle strength to the same extent as we see in white Europeans <clears throat> what is interesting and it's something we need to probe a little bit more deeply is we also looked at insulin sensitivity through a mixed meal tolerance test so we gave people a bagel and some milk and some butter and some crisps and looked at the insulin and glucose responses five hours after and while we saw an improvement in that in white Europeans which is what we would expect with uh, muscle strengthening exercises we didn't see any improvement in the in the South Asians. <clears throat> Unfortunately, the study wasn't fully powered to look at that. So statistically, there's not a difference. But when you difference, but when you see it visually, it's quite clear there's an improvement in white Europeans and and not in South Asians. Uh, there's nothing going on at all. So it kind of seems to be that their muscles have got bigger as a mm. white European, but whereas for a white European that's translated to improvements in insulin sensitivity that's not happened in the in the South Asian population we also took some muscle biopsies and we did some kind of transcriptomic analysis uh, in the muscle biopsies before and after training which is maybe not the perfect timing because there's a lot of evidence that actually the acute transcriptomic response might be more more useful looking at these mechanistically but it was the biopsies we had and again there's some indication that some of the metabolic pathways that change with exercise training in white Europeans aren't changing in the South Asians I still, right. need to, I still need to process it more fully so I can't talk more about exactly what they are so uh, there's again not what we expected but from that study there's some there's some very interesting data kind of coming out and leading to more questions than answers but again that's yeah. what that, that's what researchers 
research is about. So again, it's another population where we're trying to understand why is mm. muscle mass low, how can we increase it, and uh, what are the consequences of it. Yeah, and and you said that they they get the diabetes with lower body mass index. Yeah, and then the muscle mass is lower. So basically, if muscle mass is lower, the fat percentage has to be higher, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you think it's more about the muscle mass or actually the fat percentage, which I think is in relation to insulin resistance? Then, yeah. So again, that's I've got some colleagues here that that I've done another study looking more at the fat side of things because you're right; it could well be. Uh, it could well be the fat side of things and there's there was some evidence before and they've tried to investigate this i'll, I'll not talk about what they found uh, that's not for me to talk about but there was a hypothesis that in south asians that they didn't have as as good capacity to store adipose to store fat so when they gained weight whereas in a white european we could store it relatively safely in our adipose tissue depots subcutaneously mm -hmm. There, there was a thinking that it spilled over in South Asians because they couldn't store it safely and it ended up in the liver, it ended up in the pancreas, it ended up in the muscle. It was being stored more ectopically. Uh, mm. And and there's, so there's some thought that that's maybe what's driving. As with everything, it's probably likely to be, I'm, I'm definitely not saying it's going to just be muscle mass. That may be one of the contributing factors. Mm. Uh, there's there's more. There's definitely a lot of evidence that there's adipose tissue having a role as well in the driving the higher diabetes risk for sure. There's some possibly some epigenetic as well data. There's there's some evidence that the beta cell function, uh, particularly as diabetes progresses, not as good in in South Asians compared to white Europeans. There's a kind mm. of there's some evidence even that South Asians tend to be smaller babies and there's some kind of fetal programming going on as well that is driving it in later life. So there's a lot of factors that are likely contributing in, in one fashion or another. We just, in this study, were looking at the the muscle. But interestingly, what we also did find was that whereas South Asians gained muscle, the white Europeans lost a little bit of fat because uh, in this study we did whole body MRIs. They lost a little bit of fat. But the South Asians didn't really lose fat, and if anything, their fat kind of creeped up a little bit over the intervention. So actually, some of the effects we see in insulin sensitivity might be driven by the lack of change in fat with exercise. Mm. Uh, yeah. What's driving that? I've got no idea because we didn't think that would happen. Uh, and I said this to somebody else that we focused on muscle, took muscle biopsies, and did all this. Maybe in retrospect, we should have collected some fat biopsies as well and looked in in fact because there's maybe something interesting going on there so again further work we need to we need to go and look at that as well yeah no that's that's very interesting we were actually doing a study in china with university student and we were looking the non-weight obesity that you have a normal bmi but yeah. the fat percentage is over so it was i think from young university students there was like i think 25% of women were non-weight obese yeah. already around age of 20 and then there was quite a big maybe another 25% who were close and probably in some years probably with the same lifestyle getting actually non-weight obese and then we found that their performance in almost everything was much lower 
Yeah. Probably probably due to low low muscle mass, but it was quite a quite an alarming finding that how how prevalent and on weight obesity seemed to be. Yeah, that is great. Students. Those numbers are quite quite surprising because we know BMI has its flaws. We know it's not a perfect measure of obesity, but it hangs around because clinically it's it's something that can be measured easily. But yeah, when you're saying there that the prevalence of uh, obesity and normal BMI was that high, that's quite surprising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think it's an important thing to study, especially Definitely. With, the, with, the, with the Asian countries that the diabetes is really going going up yeah yeah i think i think for the lower muscle mass there might be genetic differences but i think also like just just kind of the culture of training especially women usually don't do sports that much in in many of the countries and yeah. then i think in india it's quite a lot of vegetarian yeah naturally so i think the protein intake might be lower or it's a different quality of protein so yeah there is definitely because what i should have said was our study they were all they were all uk based south asians ah, so all right yeah i should have said that at the start so yeah they were most of them were f probably first or second generation uh immigrants to to, the, to scotland so yeah. When when we measured their protein intake and their physical activity habits, they were exactly the same as the white European people. But mm. when it comes to for the when a worldwide diabetes prevalence, which a lot of is being driven by high prevalence rates in India and Pakistan and actually in the South Asian countries, I think you're definitely right. There is there's definitely more of a malnutrition problem. There there is definitely more. Uh, low protein diets that are driving things there's less physical activity there's more mm -hmm. of a big split within the the population as you mentioned so what would be quite interesting what we'd quite like to do as well is actually look at getting a study where it's uk based or immigrant whether it's uk whether it's america whether it's anywhere in europe south asians white europeans but then also do something similar with a cohort in South Asia as well, in India, in Pakistan, and compare mm. the compare the three groups and actually see where, because uh, in many ways the South Asian immigrants to the UK have became more like your kind of indigenous white European population uh, yeah. over over time, but in many ways they're different. So would they fall in the middle compared to the? Uh, people still residing in South Asia and the white Europeans, or where would they fall in that? I think it'd be quite fascinating to actually see to see that as well. Yeah, yeah, I fully fully agree. Yeah, sounds like very important lines of study with the sarcopenia and and then the diabetes yeah. axis with the South Asian. Yeah. Anything else you do in your your lab or? Uh, we do, yeah. We we do lots. We do lots of other things as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I don't. Know, we've got some. We've got some other studies looking at uh, diet and weight loss and combining that with resistance exercise and diabetic populations. We've started some work recently with uh, people in Kuwait where diabetes and obesity is a big issue. Trying to develop exercise and lifestyle interventions around uh, around diabetes prevention mm. and rem and remission of diabetes as well hopefully but 
if we we'd need to talk for another hour or two if I start to get into yeah. them. So uh, yeah. we can leave them for another another time. Uh, yeah, we can we can have another session. I think we uh, almost almost hour now. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. It's it's been really interesting discussions, and I have actually learned a lot at the same time. And looks like very important work. So hopefully you will figure out these these questions you are yeah. you are looking to answer. Fingers crossed, I get some answers at some point soon. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Stuart, for being a guest. No problem, thanks for having me, good to talk to you. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. The Physical Activity Researcher podcast has created an activity tracker purchase guide for researchers. Get your free copy from the link in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to the Physical Activity Researcher podcast.